I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing John Grisham on the subject of law, literature, and leadership at a program for the students and alumni of SMU Law School, and in particular, the school's Rolling Center for Business Law and Leadership and the SMU Dedman Law Sports and Entertainment Law Association. We did the interview in front of a live virtual audience on March 2nd, 2021. Enjoy. Let's go ahead and start the program. Uh, John, the title for today's program is Literature, Law, and Leadership. And as Eric mentioned, uh, one of the sponsors for the program today is the Rolling Center for Business Law and Leadership, which aspires to develop leaders at the intersection of business and law. So let's see how that applies to you. <laughs> you, you grew up in a house where your dad had a construction business, his own business, and you, your dad, and your brothers thought that business would continue into the next generation of Grishams. So in college, you studied business, you majored in accounting. And so by the time you graduated from college, you'd grown up in a business, you had business education, and then you went to Ole Miss Law School. Was your plan when you started law school to synchronize all of that, the business experience, the business education, and the legal education? I don't think I had a plan, Talmadge. Uh, <laughs> First of all, good seeing you again. You, you and I have done this for a few times over the years. We always have fun. Uh, it's great to be back at SMU. Uh, hello to Gerald and Gail Turner, old, old buddies from the Oxford days before SMU stole you away uh, 25 years ago, or no, not yet, 25 years ago. And to Boyce Holloman, I was in law school with uh, his dad, Mike Holloman, and his two uncles, Tim and Dean Holloman. Uh, at, during my three years at Ole Miss, we had all three Holloman brothers in law school. They were all uh, star students and, and really good people. I knew Boyce's grandfather, Boyce Holloman Sr., back in the 60s and 70s. The original uh, Boyce Holloman was a well-known trial lawyer and a hard-charging district attorney on the Gulf Coast in Mississippi. He uh, went after the Gulf Coast mob in the mid 1960s, and uh, it was had a pretty rough go of it. Uh, there was a lot of uh, violence, and he is a great raconteur, World War II fighter pilot, who can tell stories with the best trial lawyers all night long. Boyce Holloman was a real force back in Mississippi when I was in law school and growing up. So great to see uh, younger Boyce, um, and congrats on the, on your graduation this spring. Uh, back to your question. Um, Talmadge, yeah, there was a, my, my father wanted me to go to law school uh, because he wanted me to come back into the family business. Well, he, he built the business. When I was a kid, my father was a uh, bulldozer operator after he was a cotton farmer, and then he became a dragline operator. He could operate all types of machinery. That's how I kind of grew up in that business. By the time I was uh, finishing high school, dad had managed to start his own company, and it had a lot of potential. I worked in it uh, in the summer times during, I worked my way through college, working for my dad's uh, company each summer, doing all types of uh, 
you know, good, hard construction jobs that kids need to learn how to work and sweat. And I could operate a bulldozer and a lot of other stuff myself. And uh, for two summers, I worked in the office uh, as the company was growing and, and, you know, studying accounting, I was helping with the books and financing and all that kind of stuff. And, and I thought, we all thought at that time that, that the company had um, a very big future. And my father uh, pushed me to go to law school because he wanted me to come back into the business for, you know, to, to work there, to give legal advice and to take over one day. And so that's the reason I went to law school. Um, when I finished law school and 40 years ago, 1981, um, I married Renee one week, best move ever. And I finished law school the next week and I went back to my hometown and, uh, opened my own office. And my dad was my first client and only client for the first couple of years. I was doing a lot of work for him. Um, a lot of litigation, uh, and he paid me every month, a, a reduced rate. We always bickered over the attorney's fees, but he knew I had to survive and that he, but he was always there to support me. And I was always there to work hard for him. And about that time, after a couple of years, the, uh, the business turned south and he eventually uh, lost it. It did not work out. And for a lot of reasons, but, uh, that was my, that was my beginning. I could see a lot of success and a lot of money on the business front. And I, that's where I leaned at the same time, or I guess about the same time when I was fi finishing law school at Ole Miss, I realized that I really enjoyed the, um, mock trial competitions, the moot court courses, the, uh, I really loved being in the courtroom, uh, in front of a jury. And I began uh, going to court, to trials. I, I would keep up with the dockets around Oxford, the state courts and federal courts. And if a big time trial lawyer was coming to town for a trial, I would skip class and go watch a trial. I, I loved the courtroom. And so, you know, after the, a couple of three years of practicing law, I was taking a lot of uh, court appointed cases. I, I was realizing that the business thing was not going to work out with my dad and, and I decided to become a, you know, try to become a, a big time trial lawyer. Mm -hmm. Well, while you were in law school, uh, you had a professor, Robert Kayat. I think he taught you torts. Wasn't, wasn't that what he yeah. taught you? Yes. And of course, uh, Kayat later became the chancellor at Ole Miss. And right. he, in fact, succeeded uh, Gerald Turner, who had been the chancellor. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, during the time that you had Professor Kayat, did anything happen that <laughs> inspired you toward uh, maybe thinking about something different uh, as far as uh, a future career was concerned? Well, he was a great professor. Robert Kayat uh, was an all-American uh, football player at Ole Miss back in the glory days around 1960. And he played for uh, the Washington Redskins. He made the Pro Bowl as a kicker, an offensive line. He was just an all-American guy. Uh, he does not want anybody to ever mention this, so I'll do it anyway. Um, <laughs> he's the only man we think of in history who dated back-to-back -back Miss Americas. Ole Miss had back-to-back -back Miss Americas in 1959 and 1960. Of course, Robert Cayette, the big man on campus, was there to take care of both of them. And he, uh, he, didn't, he didn't marry either one of them. I talked to him last week. Unfortunately, his wife passed away last week, and we keep in touch. But during the first semester of torts, um, during the exam, uh, we were, uh, you know, 
first year of law school, you're terrified of every exam. They last for four hours. They have these factual patterns that are bizarre and outrageous. And, you know, the professor should be ashamed of trying to create stuff like this for us to solve. And uh, I, I did okay on the exam. I got to the last question and uh, I was running out of time and I didn't get the question. I just did not understand what I was supposed to be writing about. So I just took the characters in the, in the plot and I, um, Start, I, I wrote about them. I started writing about the characters, just a lot of BS and uh, filled up several. This is long before the internet and laptops and all that. We were handwriting. Can you believe that? And I wrote uh, page after page after page about these characters in this tour exam. And finally he called time and we had to leave. And I walked out thoroughly depressed. Uh, I, I knew I'd blown the exam like every law school student thinks about every exam. You, you, there's no way you passed it. And I went home and I came back in January to get my grades. Again, they didn't post them like they do now. And I went by Kayette's office to get my exam and uh, I made a decent grade. And I got down to the last, um, the last ex uh, question on the exam, the one I had just blown. And he wrote with a red pen. He said, he marked it all up and it was a mess. And he, he wrote at the very bottom, he said, Although you you missed most of the legal points in this problem, you have a real talent for fiction. And so uh, we laughed about it and we kept in touch. And 10 years later, when A Time to Kill came out, he, he called me up and he said, I told you so. <laughs> I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> now, after you graduated from uh, law school in 1981, uh, I was, as you said, you started uh, your own legal practice, a trial lawyer in a small town, but it didn't take long before you embarked on a political career in, in the state of Mississippi. Yeah. And obviously politics is a traditional path for aspiring leaders. But uh, what caused you to want to go into politics? I don't, I don't really remember. It was a, it was a bad diversion. It was not a, something I had my heart into. But back in the 19... 40s and 50s, it was not unusual uh, for the state legislature in Mississippi to be filled with half of the Ole Miss law students. Back then, the legislature met every other year for three months, January through March, every other year. And uh, the law students would get elected from home. It was a nice little part-time job. And they would go to Jackson, serve in the House and Senate. And it was, it was a real uh, training grounds for decades of Ole Miss, of Mississippi politicians. And they all came out of the Ole Miss Law School. I was not inspired by that. Um, however, my house district, the district I, I grew up in, was uh, a seat that I thought I could win. And I almost ran in 1979 at the age of 24. My father talked me out of it. So I ran in 1983, four years later, and won the seat easily. I enjoyed the um, campaigning, uh, you know, the contest, trying to get more votes than the other guy. But the job itself was just terrible. Once I got elected, I realized I was not cut out for public service. I was... Uh, I was three hours away from home, and we met every year then, still meet every year. Uh, it gets longer and longer every year, and, and I was away from, I was trying to, again, this is before the internet, 1984 is when I took office. Um, I was trying to maintain a law office, you know, from three hours away. I was gone half the time. Uh, Renee's at home with babies. Uh, I, I didn't belong there, and I was never, and one thing that really, um, 
I realized early on, we didn't have a staff uh, to take care of, you know, constituents. And I, I realized as soon as I got elected, first of all, everybody voted for me. Even though I only got 65% of the vote, everybody voted for me, every single person. And uh, most of them wanted jobs. They, they, they wanted something, but most of them wanted jobs. And uh, right off the bat, I was getting you know, these phone calls and uh, letters and knock door knocks, people wanting something from me as their elected official. And I just realized um, I didn't like that. I didn't like the constituent service. After about two years in the state house, it, it dawned on me driving home one day from Jackson, I couldn't stand the voters. And when a politician reaches that point, it's time to quit. So I wasn't cut out for politics. So about that time, 1984, uh, you embarked on, a, on an avocation at the time. You, were, you tried your hand at fiction while you were a practicing trial lawyer. And obviously you've gone on and you're recognized uh, appropriately as one of the great storytellers in American history. Uh, but during your, your time as a, as a trial lawyer, uh, were you using your storytelling skills? Uh, you know, Tamich, I got a great legal education at Ole Miss. And one thing I remember uh, was the, the classes where the older lawyers would come in and talk to us. Uh, at that time, in the late 70s, early 80s, there were uh, some really top-notch old school trial lawyers who had been around and could try a case, who could take a case from the, from the date of the accident or whatever, the, whatever it was and take the case and work it up all the way and take it to a trial, to a successful verdict. There aren't many lawyers today who can do that still. Uh, I wanted to be able to do that, but most lawyers have always shied away from doing that. It takes a lot of hard work and a lot of guts to do it, to risk it all with a jury's verdict. And we had, we had some of these guys, and I'll never forget one of them one day, uh, and, and he was visiting lecture, we were all, you know, hanging on every word. And he said, the, your, your lawsuit begins with a story. You've got to tell the jury a story that they will listen to that's compelling, that is convincing and truthful, and it starts with the opening statement. He said, I spend hours from the moment I get the case, I understand what the facts are. I spend hours upon hours writing my opening story to the jury. That's your first shot at the jury. You've got to tell them a compelling story. And that's, that's the way I grew up as a lawyer. That's what I always believed in doing. You see, I spent a lot of time with, because you have plenty of time to, to prepare the opening statement and almost no time to prepare your closing argument because that comes at the end of the trial when everything is happening at once. I, I've learned that the hard way, uh, but, but I, I was learning and I was, I was trying to do that. I, I recall writing for hours this opening scenario that would capture the jury. So yeah, it was very important. Well, as I said, about that time, 1984, uh, something happened uh, that caused you to try your hand at, at, at writing fiction. So, so, so what were the circumstances that, uh, that made the, uh, your career begin? Well, I, you know, I had never um, written anything. Uh, it was not a childhood dream to become a writer. It was not something I studied in college. Uh, never 
I never thought about it. Uh, I'd always been a, a big reader uh, from a small kid. Still am. Um, I have yet to meet a writer who is not a voracious reader. That's just part of the job description. But um, I uh, had never thought about writing anything. Uh, and I was in a courtroom one day because I, I hung around courtrooms. Uh, if, if, again, if there was a big trial locally, I was going to see part of it. If, if the big lawyers were coming to town or close by, I was going to try to get there and watch them. And I, um, I saw something in court one day that was uh, a horrible criminal case. I was not involved in it, a court-appointed case. And a um, little girl had been uh, assaulted, and uh, she testified. And it was um, extremely emotional uh, to sit through as, uh, you know, just a spectator. And um, I began thinking about it long after it was over. Uh, if you changed a fact here or there at the time, Tamage, I was living, uh, this life of a small town lawyer, solo practitioner, dreaming of the big K broke, but dreaming of the big case, dreaming of the big courtroom drama that would, you know, somehow elevate me above the other law. I mean, I wanted to be in the middle of the courtroom with the big verdicts. And it was very much like, uh, uh, Jake Bergantz in The Time to Kill and The Time for Mercy. You know, that, that was, that's very autobiographical, struggling, but idealistic and also trying to do what's right for my clients. And so I thought about this drama as seen through the eyes of this young attorney in a small town in Mississippi uh, who gets a big case, a big trial. And um, I thought, this is, a, this is a great story. This is a, something pretty cool. And I didn't know what to do with it. Um, and finally, one night, I said, you know, I'm going to try to write this. And I sat down with a, a legal pad and um, began writing chapter one. And three years later, it was finished. Now, great. Back to the theme of leadership and the law and, and, and literature. Great leaders to engage the people are often great storytellers. So uh, from your perspective, What's the most important trait for a great storyteller? Well, you've got to have uh, you got to have the facts on your side, or you or, or you have to be able to spin them in such such a way that you can make them believable and plausible. Forget juries; let's talk about fiction. Uh, a lot of writers think that they can write anything because it's fiction. Well, that's not true. You have to write something, you can write anything, but it has to be believable. It has to be plausible. It has to be um, something that, you know, your reader is going to go along with. You got to have credibility. You can't just, you know, create a crazy story that nobody is going to believe. So believability, integrity to the story, you've got to have, uh, again, you got to have a compelling set of facts and, and you've got to have sympathetic characters. Uh, there are a lot of great stories out there about people who nobody really wants to read about because they're such awful people. Um, but you know, the secret to good suspense, I didn't create it, I didn't invent this. It's, it's you take um, a very sympathetic hero or heroine and you get them in a lot of trouble and you get them out. And that's basic suspense. Now, several years ago, you told me that what the world needs more of 
is great editors. <laughs> so talk about kind of your refinement process from uh, the first draft down to the final draft in terms of, of your process uh, and whether whether you like whether you enjoy that and whether you realize how critically important that is to the final product. Well, nobody enjoys it. Nobody enjoys editing. I tell I tell students occasionally. I don't give advice, but uh, there are two aspects to writing that you don't want to hear about. Number one is is at the beginning when you outline and plan your story. I made my kids when I could when they were you know when they were twelve years old. Uh, if they had a two page paper to tell a story. I would say, okay, give me the beginning, give me the end, and tell me how you're going to get from one to the other. Okay, think about that. Before you write a word, what is your story? And that's called outlining. I admit that I do it religiously. Most, most writers say they don't do it. I think they're all lying. But we, we have, you have to know where your story's going, okay? And so that's, that's, that's not a fun part because I'll spend sometimes months on an outline trying to work out the kinks of a story. The second part is the editing. Once you're done, you want to turn it in and be done with it. Once you're done, you want the book published. Once you're done, you, you know, you're really sick of it. Uh, but you can't quit because the revision process is crucial. The editing, you, gotta have, you have to have a good editor. Um, I've, I've been very lucky with the editing. First of all, Renee reads uh, every chapter of every book. I mean, she's bored with it now after 45 books, but she has no choice. Uh, she was, she's an English major and she reads a lot and she has a very good feel for when something is working and when it's not. Uh, and she's, she uh, is never hesitant about saying so. <laughs> so we have some very healthy discussions about the fiction. Uh, she's a tough one to uh, get past. Um, but once I do that, she, you know, she'll mark up the manuscripts uh, again with a red pen because she really enjoys marking them up. <laughs> I'll take her. I'll take them and uh, redo that. Uh, 30, 30 years ago, the firm was published 30 years ago today, March 2nd, 1991, 30 years ago. At the time, it was purchased by a junior editor at Doubleday named David Gernert. David bought the firm. He and I are the same age. Uh, as soon as he bought it, Ray and I took off to New York and had this great visit, you know, because uh, my second book was going to be a bigger book. Um, David published the first four or five uh, novels in about 1995. My original agent uh, died suddenly. He was an older guy. And I went to David and I said, okay, uh, you're now my agent. And he said, okay. Well, he's still my editor. So I've had the same editor for over 30 years. And uh, it's, it's, our relationship is so close. If, if I write a speech or something, if I write a two-page forward to another book, I send to David, okay? He, he edits that. He edits everything. Um, sometimes he hardly touches them. Sometimes he, you know, he got some comments. But I, I'm not... I'm not insecure, but I just know you, whatever you write needs a different set of eyes to look at it. And great editors can make a book even better. And so I go through this really long editing process with David, line by line, chapter by chapter. And, you know, I'll probably uh, adopt half of what he wants. Sometimes it's a word here, a word there. Sometimes it's a whole chapter, a whole section. Why do we need this? What, what, what does this character offer? You know, so it's, it's a tough process. Uh, but a lot of, a lot of big writers 
reach a point to where they turn in a thousand page manuscript so they don't touch it. And, uh, and you can tell they, they pay a price for it. So <laughs> I, I don't like editing, but I, I do it all the time. Now, we have a lot of law students in, the, in this audience. We also have a lot of young lawyers. And getting back to your 1984 decision to try your hand at fiction, which ultimately obviously led to your final career, what's your advice to young lawyers uh, when they feel a nudge to maybe try something different outside the box of what they're currently doing career-wise? I can't really speak to changing careers from one law firm to the other, from one type of law to the other, from, you know, cause I didn't really do that. Um, and I, again, I've been out of the law office for 30 years and things are a whole lot different today than way back then. I, I tell students and I tell aspiring writers, uh, all the time before you write, uh, or take yourself seriously as a writer. You got to have a career. You got to have a job. You got to have a day job. You've got to have something you find, hopefully, that is emotionally and financially fulfilling to allow you to spend an hour or two a day with your secret hobby, and that's writing. Nobody finishes college and says, "Okay, I'm going to write books now and make money." Nobody ever does that because it can't be done. Uh, you've got to. Um, work for a while, learn something, live, uh, hopefully love, uh, hopefully not suffer, but we all do. Win some, lose some, uh, travel, see the world, see things that you can add to your fiction. Um, there's not much of a demand for novels written by 25-year-old people. It happens, but pretty rare. Uh, but you've got to get out in the world and pursue a vocation that, that you love. If you're lucky enough to find something that you love to do, then it's not going to be considered work. At the same time, you have to take the fiction or the writing, doesn't have to be fiction, uh, very seriously, uh, an hour a day uh, or two hours a day and pursue that. Um, I tell students uh, all the time, the most important piece of advice I can give any writer is until you're writing at least one page a day, nothing is going to happen. You know, you can talk about your book, you can dream about your book, you can whatever. But until you're writing one page a day, at least one page a day, nothing's going to happen. Well, you do that for two years and you finished a book and um, then you go from there. So um, that, that's my only advice to writers is just, you know, it's not going to come easy. There's going to be a lot of rejection, uh, but everybody gets rejected. A Time to Kill was rejected by, you know, 30 uh, editors and agents. That's, that's not unusual. That's the way it is. <laughs> well, after you'd written several novels, which were, you know, blockbuster bestsellers, something nudged you to try your hand at writing a nonfiction book, mm -hmm. uh, which became The Innocent Man. So, so, so what was that nudge about that made you feel like it's time for me to do this? I never felt the, no, I was not looking for a change in career. I was not looking for a different kind of book. I was not searching for anything. Um, I had just finished a novel on time. It was my next book. Uh, it was going to be published the following year. And it was one of those moments where something happens that you just uh, can't believe. It was an obituary. 
in the New York Times uh, early in December of 2004, um, a guy just died, a guy my age, um, and he had gone to death row from his small town in Oklahoma and uh, came within five days of being executed for a murder he had nothing to do with. Um, and he had been the first round draft pick of the Oakland A's in 1972. In his little corner of Oklahoma, um, the scouts and coaches believed that he was the next Mickey Mantle. And he certainly believed it himself. He was uh, very cocky, very good, but he was headed for the big time. And uh, didn't happen. He you know, got injured in the minors and picked up some bad habits and crashed and burned and went back to his small town and defeated, humiliated, depressed, uh, began showing signs of mental illness at some level and was framed for a murder. The town almost killed him. The town almost killed him after he'd been their sports hero. Anyway, that's all in the obituary town. <laughs> so I said, that story is too good to pass up. I had never, I never thought about nonfiction. I was not trained as a journalist. I didn't know how to, you know, dig or research or verify sources or, you know, what are the rules of basic journalism? I had to learn all that. And I took off to Oklahoma to begin researching and uh, the story just grew and grew and grew every, every turn there was more uh in this small town there were six wrongful convictions in a five-year period in the mid-1980s uh six different guys four different crimes were, were sent away by the same authorities and it was i mean it just became a f phenomenal story but but that process took me into the world of uh wrongful convictions something i had never thought about before and i realized how many innocent people are actually in prison. And so I joined the board of the Innocence Project, still there, still active, still trying to get people out of prison in Oklahoma and other states. And one of your most recent novels, The Guardians, really goes deep on the Innocence Project and, and the types of cases they handle and the kinds of challenges that, that they face. So that turned into a source for a novel. I've, I've been there many times, been there several times with wrongful convictions, probably too often. I can't see going back anytime soon. There have been um, uh, several subplots in the other novels about wrongful convictions. And uh, The Guardians was uh, inspired by a real person who committed his life to uh, freeing the innocent, um, Jim McCloskey. And I've known him for a long time. He inspired me to write that novel. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of, I'm not done with innocence, uh, because there's so much work to do, uh, at the innocence project in New York, we are up to, I think 370 DNA exonerations in the past 25 years. Some of those guys were on death row and, um, you know, it's difficult work getting people out once you know they're innocent. So that's, that work will continue. But as a writer, I'm not sure I'll go back to the innocence issue anytime soon. Well, although much of your <clears throat> fiction, as you acknowledge, <clears throat> is pure entertainment, you're not trying to be the next William Faulkner. Uh, but some of it, particularly in recent years, has become more and more uh, purpose-driven, where you've written about stories about flaws in our system of justice that need to be corrected. And it makes you almost, but not quite, a crusader 
So, so what inspired you to start thinking in terms of fiction plots that were aimed at, at some of the real problems we've got in our justice system? It always goes, it always goes back to the story. Uh, I start with a story wherever I happen to steal one. And I'm always looking, uh, you know, for stories, newspapers, magazines, uh, online stuff, um, great stories uh, that, for example, uh, right now we're in the middle of this COVID pandemic. I can't imagine writing about, you know, the plague or things like that. That's more like science fiction. But the, the litigation's already started big time. You got lawsuits against nursing homes. You've got uh, people being terminated for not wearing masks and they're suing. You have people who are refusing vaccines and they're getting fired or suing. I have a really good friend who uh, has a bunch of businesses done well. And he had, he had business interruption insurance and the word pandemic was listed in the coverages. He had them dead to right, okay? And he filed his claim a year ago and the insurance company said, no, sorry, I'm not gonna pay it. Well, that's a big lawsuit. And that's happened all over the country. I'm not sure the insurance companies can pay all these claims. Uh, they sure spent all the premiums. So I just uh, some great issues coming out of the pandemic. So I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'm gonna write about that, but um, the, the criminal, I'm really frustrated with the criminal justice system because we have so many flaws that could be fixed that would alleviate a lot of suffering that we see uh, being played out today in the streets. Uh, they're just things like mass incarceration, bail reform, uh, wrongful convictions, death penalty, um, drug laws, all these, you know, all these issues that we're watching today uh, have at their core some, some injustice in our system. And we could fix them if we would. So that's, but still keeps me awake at night. I'm still, I'm still, I'm pen pals with half a dozen guys in prison who are, uh, who are innocent. And I'm not their lawyer. I don't practice law anymore, but um, I keep in touch with them and pay for the lawyers sometimes and try to get them out. So I'm still pretty active on, on those fronts. Now, besides the Innocence Project, another important cause uh, involving the law for which you've been a leading advocate is the need for legal aid and access to justice mm. for those who can't afford to pay for lawyers. Right. So, so what was the inspiration for you to decide this is something I want to be a big part of to try to advance the cause of access to justice? When I was a, when I was a young lawyer, I went back to my hometown and opened up my own office and, you know, hung out my shingle and declared myself ready to sue people. <laughs> didn't have any clients. Um, but it didn't take long to realize, for me to realize that I had a hard time saying no to people who needed help. And uh, so I took a lot of cases that, you know, I never got paid for. <laughs> a lot of pro bono work that did, did not begin as pro bono work. Uh, but I, I was just uh, always uh, inundated with, and then getting elected didn't help because people would come to my office who, again, had voted for me who needed legal help. So I was, I always had an office full of people. None of them could pay. But, you know, I, I, just, I just couldn't, I could not say, um, I had a hard time saying no uh, to people in need. And I also realized early on the uh, power of a law degree. 
the power of a license to practice law because I had some clients that, you know, had nothing and they were getting wrongfully evicted uh, in one case. And, and there were other, you know, egregious cases. And you call a guy up as a lawyer for this guy with no money. Suddenly he's got a lawyer. Well, it changes everything. And so I've, I've supported legal aid back then in North Mississippi you know, as a lawyer. And I realized over the years, um, about half of all people in this country have access to civil justice. And that's, that's a pretty lousy indictment. That means a lot of poor people uh, can't be protected. And so I've, over that, I've, I've, you know, because of that, I've been uh, inspired over the years to really support legal aid. Well, we've got this audience of all these strong SME law students and a lot of young lawyers who've dialed in. Uh, what do you want to say to them, uh, for all of them, about the need for them now and in the future to take on this important cause of, of supporting legal aid and access to judgment, uh, justice, whether it's actually doing pro bono work or supporting it financially? Uh, what's your encouragement to them? Well, as you know, most of your big firms are great about uh, uh, encouraging their young associates and all their lawyers to uh, donate X number of hours a year to pro bono. Um, it's, it's difficult to, when you're trying to make a living to you know, give away your services. But I think the legal profession has done a good job of encouraging its members uh, to do that. Again, you, you, I didn't have time for uh, legal aid when I finished law school. I had to make a living. Um, that's, that's the boat we're all going to be in. The kids nowadays have so much money in debt. When you and I finished, we didn't have any student debt. Thank God we couldn't borrow the money back then. Like you can now, we'd, we'd, we'd just gone under a long time ago. Uh, but now the kids have so much debt that they got to pay it off. And you can't expect them to donate their time initially to uh, to a lot of free work. But, you know, you, you got to be aware of it. You, you, you can all We can all do some of it. We can all uh, donate a few hours. I think the older you get, uh, maybe the more successful, the more you can give away. Uh, I am stunned by some of these big firms and the hours they put in, uh, for uh, wrongful conviction cases and, and death row cases, uh, tens of thousands of hours that they donate for pro bono work to get innocent people out of jail and to keep people off death row. Uh, I, I ran into it as a young lawyer 30 years ago with a death penalty case in Mississippi, I could not believe the resources that this firm in New York was throwing at this case. And these lawyers are not only uh, smart as hell, they were very, very motivated and, and inspiring. So there's plenty of work for all of us to do uh, to help the poor. Mm -hmm. Now, as Boyce mentioned on the front end, uh, uh, this program is being uh, co-sponsored by the SMU Dedman Sports and Entertainment Law Association, and presumably their members, at least some of them, aspire to be agents or entertainment lawyers. And John, best-selling authors like you uh, get involved in lots of contracts, whether it's book contracts or contracts with your literary agents, with media contracts, if your stories get made into movies, TVs, or theater productions. So, so how has your legal training helped you with the, with the reality that your commercial dealings are, are governed by contracts? Uh, tough question. I learned early on that the contracts I was drafting 
in my little office in South Haven, Mississippi, were far different from the publishing contracts uh, in New York and the movie contracts in LA. The first contract I saw was for the film rights to the firm, uh, first big contract, and it came from Paramount Studios. And it was about four inches thick, and I had never seen uh, such a bunch of gobbledygook in my life. I kept come to realize that's what studios do, so they can screw you out of money. Uh, <laughs> that's been their mo for years. Um, over the years, though, I've had uh, I have I've been blessed with a great entertainment lawyer. Uh, he passed away a month ago in New York, and I'm lost without him. I mean, I, I, he has a great firm, but um, you got to have. You got to, at any level of success, especially here where you have so many people uh, always trying to get something from you. For example, if, you know, we'll get a phone call today, somebody wanting to buy the film rights of a book I haven't sold yet. Um, and we have to research who that person is, or their production company, who's behind them, uh, what are they really up to, can they do the job, can they guarantee the budget, and just, you know, a couple of phone calls, we have to do all this, this uh, due diligence to find out who we are dealing with, and I don't, I don't have time to do that, uh, so I have lawyers who do it, and, and, and it's, it's crucial work. Um, the contracts are... In the early days, I insisted on reading all of my own contracts. And um, that, you know, almost drove me insane. Then I hired a lawyer in New York uh, to do that for me. Then I found a great lawyer who has represented me for 25 years. It's the the, the great thing about having the law degree and some degree of experience uh, as a lawyer. They're really afraid to try to pull a fast one. They know that. Uh, I can read a contract. They also know, this is the big thing, they know I'm going to hire great legal help. I've been sued um, three or four times in 30 years by, you know, crackpots claiming I stole their idea, I stole their, you know, some uh, copyright, whatever. You know, it's, it's the threat of litigation is always there. Uh, it's something you have to deal with. But um, over the years, I've had the reputation because of, the lawyers I hire uh, being somebody who's very, very tough to litigate with because, again, great lawyers. Uh, I think being a lawyer allows me to recognize the talent and hire the good guys. Well, let's talk about movies or we could talk about TV shows or, or a Broadway show, The Time to Kill, TV series, The Firm, lots of nine movies. Once that contract is signed, uh, what's your involvement in, say, turning the language of your book into a script or approving the cast yeah. or, or anything involving the ultimate uh, final product? Not much. Not much. I, I learned a long time ago, this is a different world. Um, I, I don't make movies. I don't know how. I'm not going to learn. That's somebody else's world. Uh, what we try to do is sell the film rights, the adaptation to uh, somebody with a good reputation. And there are a lot of them, a lot of them in the business. And so maybe it's somebody we dealt with before. Uh, probably not now because most of those folks are dead. It was 25 years ago when they started making the first big movies or 30 years ago almost. Uh, but, we, you know, we try to deal with uh, sometimes I'll we get down to the you know, point of the contract and I'll um, I'll have to watch a couple of movies that this director did to, to, to say, do I want this guy or do I want to sign the contract? Uh, sometimes I will read a screenplay. Uh, I try to avoid those. 
because uh, everybody makes notes on screenplays and I, I don't, that's not how I want to spend my time. So I try to say, uh, <laughs> I think I told you the story one time. Many years ago, I was talking to Stephen King. First time I met him, uh, he came to Oxford for a book festival. And we were driving around Lafayette County, Mississippi, and uh, talking about this and that. And by then, he'd been through everything. You know, he's Stephen's 15 years ahead of me in the business. And we're talking about movies. And he'd had, he's had so many movies, uh, dozens of movies made from his stuff. And he said, look, when it comes to Hollywood, there are a few certain rules. Uh, listen carefully. <laughs> he said, uh, when it comes to selling film rights, there are two groups of writers. The first group consists of those of those who do not deal with Hollywood. You're not, not going to sell their stuff. They've been burned before. They don't, whatever, whatever, whatever. They don't deal with Hollywood. That's a very small group. Uh, the second group consists of those of us who do. If you're going to deal with Hollywood, there are a couple of basic rules. Get all your money up front, kiss it goodbye, and expect it to be something different. If you don't like that, go join the first group. <laughs> it's, the, it's the best advice I've ever got. It's the best advice in this business I've ever received from Stephen King. That's the way I approach it. Well, before we get to the... Uh questions from the, the audience. Uh, you, your next novel, uh, Suli, uh, is coming out on April the 24th. It's about a college basketball player. Uh, and so would you like to give this audience some kind of a sneak preview of, of this book? Well, you, you, you and I talk sports uh, all the time. I, in fact, I wrote the forward for, for your book about what, 1939, the, the baseball year. Uh, yeah. Great book. Ten, 10 years ago, I wrote that forward. We're always talking sports, always gambling on college football games. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, I've written two football novels, um, Bleachers and Playing for Pizza, and it, it enjoyed those. They're shorter books. They're faster books. They're, um, I'm a real sucker for <clears throat> sad sports stories. And with uh, Calico Joe, my baseball novel, I um, – had this idea for, I love the story of, of uh, your favorite team, the Boston Red Sox, uh, and Tony Conigliero, who was beamed in 1969, I think. 67. By, 67, by a guy named Jack Hamilton, who was my best friend in law school, a different Jack Hamilton. Anyway, it was a great story. Tony uh, was, his career was, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> seriously sidetracked. He managed to come back and then he died young. Tragic story. And, and you know, the baseball Folks have always wondered how great would he have been. He had Yastrzemski on the other side of the plate, and you had Tony C on the right side of the plate. And how great could they have been together? And so, uh, because but but for one beanball. And so I took that story with Calico Joe and put together a, a, a baseball story I just truly love. Um, I um, my wife and I love college basketball. We live here in Charlottesville. We go to all the UVA home games with our son who went to UVA. Uh, and my wife is a Tar Heel, so we go to Chapel Hill. We watch all the home games in Chapel. So our springtime and wintertime in March, you know, we're watching basketball. And for years, I've been wanting to do a basketball novel, but I have to wait for the story. I can't just, you know, I can't just snap my fingers and create a story. And um, and so I've always been. Um, uh, I don't. I don't want to give away the ending of the book. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you, 
I've always liked, I've always been touched by the sadness of the Lynn Bias story, a great player in Maryland 35 years ago who died young. And also we had a kid here at UVA for four years who was from Africa, who really we all loved. So I put those two together and Suli is the character's name. It's a terrible, not terrible title for a book, but I couldn't think of anything else. We kept trying to think of a great basketball phrase beyond the arc, above the rim, what, everything, you name it. We, we tried everything, nothing fit. So we just stuck with Suli and that's, that's the novel. It comes out and as you said, next month. All right, now here's a question from my great friend, Sandy Cress, who uh, is a great reader. Uh, and he says, you're awfully good at the opening words of a story. And, and obviously that's important. That's, you know, that's often a, a hook. Uh, and Sandy knows, and I know that you're also historically been involved in, in politics at all levels. So what, what are your first words? If, if somebody said, John, we need you to help unify and lead people to, to do good things as citizens uh, in the midst of all the stuff that the country's involved with now, what are your opening words uh, in an attempt to try to get a little unity going? Well, Tam, I can't do it. I can't do it off the cuff. Uh, the, uh, the, the opening sentence is, is always very important. And that, that's why I believe in writing things out. Um, I love Churchill. He's one of the greatest speakers of all time. He made it appear as though it was simply off the cuff. Okay. BS. He wrote and wrote and wrote and practiced and practiced and practiced until it sounded like it was off cuff. Same way with the opening paragraph in any novel that I write um, or any, any novel that's really enjoyable. Um, I spent a lot of time with the first, first sentence, first chapter. You got to catch the reader with, with the plot, with the hook, with the suspense, but also with the language. And so that those are the, those are the toughest words to write. And it takes a long time. Do you have any, any words for this very diverse audience of knowing how much uh, you and, and, and I think everybody wants to get some thoughts of, of, of unity going, uh, something that occurs to you. And I realize you just said, I don't really like to be spontaneous, but is there something that, that speaks to you in terms of, golly, if we could just think about this, zero in on this, and maybe we could start uh, acting a little more harmoniously. I have no wisdom to impart uh, when it comes to politics or partisanship or the mess in Washington. I'm optimistic, though, that if we are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with the pandemic um, and we get a break here and there and the numbers keep going down and uh, more and more of us are inoculated, um, that by summertime, if there seems to be some semblance of normalcy again, uh, I think the vast majority of the American people are going to go crazy uh, traveling, getting out, going places, you know, uh, just, um, you know, we're busting at the seams to get out and go somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be a big boom for certain segments of our, 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 uh, our, our business world economy. Uh, but I think this, I think the fall, if we, you know, if we're, again, if we're a little bit lucky, could be uh, a whole lot more fun than we're having right now. If you take, take the pressure off, the pandemic pressure off this, this uh, bowling pot that we have with politics, people are going to relax and be able to enjoy life a little bit. So I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic. 
Okay. Now you mentioned uh, how every great writer that you know of, including yourself, are voracious readers. So uh, Lynn Bozales has asked, <clears throat> what are, what are your, some, some of your favorite authors or books that you feel like uh, have kind of guide or guided or inspired you in, in the way you like to tell a story? Well, not Hemingway. Um, my, my literary project for this year is to read all of Hemingway's novels and short stories, most of them for the second or third time. And I'm, I've read about five novels and uh, two collections, and uh, I'm, I'm struggling. Um, I'm having a hard time getting through it, uh, but I'll hang on. That's, that's my literary project. Um, my fun, my fun project, uh, I've always got two or three books, you know, uh, I'm, I'm working on. John Le Carre died last month. He was a British espionage great writer that I followed for many, many years. In 1980, he published a book called Little Drummer Girl. Um, the backdrop of the Palestinian Israeli conflict. And, and to me, it was just, you know, a classic of great smart suspense. How do you write good, smart suspense with a, you know, a high degree of art? And he, he was that good. That book is always, um, I go back, I go back to the books that I reread and I, I read that book every four or five years to remind myself to keep working, to get better because I'll never be as good as he was. Um, I've always enjoyed Steinbeck and you know, my, my favorite classical writer was Steinbeck. Uh, I've read most of his books. I'll pick one up. I love Mark Twain. I probably read more Mark Twain in the course of the last five years than anybody else. And I also read some of the more uh, popular writers. Uh, Scott Turow is a you know friend and a really talented writer. Michael Connolly. Um, Ian Rankin, the Scottish uh, police writer. So I'm kind of all over the place. Okay, um, let me find another question here. Um, we have some people who know you. Uh, Rachel Hall, my great uncle, also went to Mississippi State, a U.S. Senator for Mississippi, Senator Bill Calicott, uh, somebody who knew you in this. Uh, my wife, uh, Rob Evans, my wife Carolyn and I were guests of, of yours, many of your premieres while coaching basketball at Ole Miss. My question is, what are your... What are your children doing now? Uh, I know your son is, is a lawyer. I know your daughter's a teacher. But I, I think uh, in particular, talk about how your, your daughter kind of got you going in, in an area of fiction you never even thought about before. Well, uh, Shay is our daughter. She's 35 years old. She lives in Raleigh, school teacher. She has, she has uh, two grandkids, or, or only two grandkids, and as you are learning Talmadge, life changes with the grandkids. You have one that's not even a month old yet. First one, little Nolan, left-handed pitcher. Uh, so that's you know that's our whole world right now. We see a lot of them. Ty, my son, is 38. Practices law here in Charlottesville. I got married last summer, and so we're very close to the kids, and uh, we see uh, see them all the time. Uh, what was your question? Uh, talk about how Shay. Uh... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Corrected you into an area of fiction you never even thought about before. Well, she she sent us off in two directions. Uh, about ten years ago, she her she was teaching school, uh, class of fifth graders, and she asked me if I could write suspense for kids, and I'd never thought about that, and that planted the idea for um, uh, what has become my kids series, Theodore Boone, Kid Lawyer. It's about a thirteen year old kid, only child, 
Both parents are lawyers and all they do is talk about the law and often in a funny way. They're a little bit older. And his dream is not to play professional baseball or star in movies. Uh, his dream is to be a lawyer or a great judge. And he gets in all kinds of trouble because he's always given uh, free legal advice to his friends and their older brothers. So that's Theodore Boone. About uh, five or six years ago, uh, but no, it's probably 10 years ago, we got a phone call from Shay one night. It was, it was her first class, so it was at least 10 years ago. Uh, she was teaching kindergarten, and she called one night uh, very upset, um, which is not unusual. And she, um, she said that she had realized that she had a couple of kids who were getting to school each morning, and they were hungry. And they were too late for the uh, breakfast that was available in the cafeteria, public schools in Raleigh, great school. And um, she be began watching them and realized that there were, there were more than two kids in her class of 25 who were not getting breakfast and were hungry. And we had never thought about the issue of childhood hunger before. And so Renee jumped in with both feet and Long story short, Renee is now on the board of uh, No Kid Hungry, a national movement uh, to, and you, you're, you're involved there in Dallas, Talmadge, uh, and we, we all are, uh, trying to raise money and awareness for hungry kids. In the past year with the pandemic, a year ago, we had whittled away at the number to where one in seven kids in this country, still a big number, one in seven, faced uh, food insecurity issues, which is a fancy way for saying they're not sure where the next meal is coming from. That was 1.7. A year of COVID, we are up to 1.4. Think about that, 25% of all kids, almost 20 million kids in this country uh, are food insecure. It's a huge problem. And the problem can be solved in America because we produce enough food for all of us. Uh, there's plenty of food to go around, and it's just a matter of getting the food to the kids. And that's that's our current that's our yeah that's our current cause right now. We're very active with that. Well, it's so huge, and you've you've got me and many others involved in uh, making it work in Texas for all the the hungry kids in Texas. So thanks for moving the needle. Uh, in the chat box is is a note from Gerald Turner John saying, "Gail and I are grateful for your friendship." and occasional involvement with SMU and, and hope that Renee is doing well. So, so know that they have seen this program and they, they think of you very fondly as a good friend. Thank you, great to hear from you all. After hearing John Grisham speak on law, literature, and leadership, I hope you have a new appreciation for John, not just as a fantastic storyteller, but as a person who's operating on several levels to help make the world a better place. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bragan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.